following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Church, I invite you to take God's word this morning and turn with me to the Apostles, the Apostle Peter's second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. This morning, as we come to this final chapter in this brief letter, we are actually returning to the point where Peter left off at in chapter 1, where the Apostle said to his readers, that original audience in Asia Minor. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is exhorting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be devoted to the scriptures so that the church can exercise diligence when it comes to pursuing holiness and discernment when it comes to avoiding heretics. For how long? How long are we to do this, we might ask? He says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's referring to the second coming of Christ or what the Bible often refers to as the day of the Lord. How long are we to be diligent? How long are we to be devoted to the scriptures? And how long are we to be discerning when it comes to the enemy's voice? Until the day dawns, the day of the Lord. Until that day, the Christian is to have a view of that day in his and her heart, looking to that day. Peter recalls the transfiguration of Christ here in chapter 1, when he and James and John went up with Jesus on that mountain and witnessed a glimpse and a preview, if you will, of Christ's second coming. He tells us that Christ was transfigured before their very eyes. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white, dazzling as light. And based on the three accounts that we have of the transfiguration in the Gospels, the purpose of the transfiguration was clear. It was intended to impress upon the minds of the apostles the reality that Christ will return in his glorious kingdom at the end of history. His face will be shining like the sun in the glory of his father and he will have all his holy angels with him. And what, he'll, what will he do? He'll grant everlasting relief and rest to his people and put an end to the rebellion of his enemies. He will appear and he will usher in an everlasting Sabbath rest for his people. And even as Genesis 1 records God resting on the seventh day and describes no end to that seventh day, you remember the prior six days of creation ending with the words, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, third, all the way up to the sixth day. But when we get to the seventh day, it doesn't end the way that sixth day and fifth day and fourth day ends. Because in the same way, Christ is going to usher in an everlasting Sabbath rest for his people that has no end. In the same way, the writer of Hebrews tells us at the end of chapter, right there in chapter four, that there remains in the future a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a rest for us to enter into. 
As Revelation 14 talks about, we will one day rest from our labors. We will find relief and rest from the toil in this world. The curse of sin, we will find rest. And we know that that everlasting Sabbath rest will come when our Savior comes again. Now, many people think that the main theme of 2 Peter is false teachers. And so 2 Peter kind of has a dark tone about it in the minds of so many people. But the chapter dealing with false teachers falls right between this grand theme of the day of the Lord, the time Peter refers to as the coming of the day of God. So chapter one ends with this hope of this day dawning. And then he takes a detour to talk about the false teachers that will appear. And then he comes back at the end in chapter three and he focuses his attention again on this coming of the day of God. Chapter one ends with the apostle exhorting us to pay attention to the scriptures until that day comes. He describes the false teachers who will arise and lead many astray before that day comes. And then here in chapter three, where we find ourselves this morning, Peter returns to this theme of the day of the Lord. And he says in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's the main theme of second Peter, the day, the day. And then all the imposters who will come and try to deceive many before that day comes. It will come. It will happen. It will transpire. And until that day dawns, the church is to wait longingly for her Savior, looking to his word and calling the world to prepare for his arrival and the judgment that he will execute when he comes. The day of the Lord will come. I've given you, as we've made our way through this little letter, three divisions within 2 Peter, and they all fall in line with each chapter. So chapter one is about the saving knowledge within us. Chapter two is about the false teachers among us. And now as we come to chapter three, it's all about the blessed hope before us. The saving knowledge within us, chapter one, the false teachers among us, chapter two, and the blessed hope before us in chapter three. And as we consider verses one through 10 this morning, one through 10, I want you to note three particulars regarding the coming of the day of God, the coming of the day of the Lord, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses one to two, the word of God says it. In verses verses three through four, the enemies of God scoff at it. And in verses 5 through 10, the nature of God supports it. The nature of God supports this coming day. And so as we get into God's word now, let's consider, first of all, regarding the day of the Lord, the word of God says it very clearly. Notice how verse 1 begins. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Now, You remember and can recall and can actually assume, right, that just the letters alone that we have in the New Testament were probably not the only letters written to the churches. We find, for example, hints in Paul's writing to the Corinthians that there were other letters floating around out there. And we get all hung up because, well, we don't have the whole thing. Well, I can assure you that God is sovereign and he's over all of providence and he reigns and he rules. And we have exactly what he wants us to have. So anything Paul wrote that didn't make it in here? It's not because, it's because God didn't want it in here. Same with Peter. Peter presumably wrote other letters to to the churches in his day. But we have exactly what God wants us to have in the Bible. And so many assume that this is probably 1 Peter that he's mentioning. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you. And notice the tone now. Beloved. There at the end of that sentence. Beloved. I mean, we just got out of this fiery, fiery chapter on false teachers where they were not referred to as beloved. They were referred to as enemies. They were referred to as dogs returning back to their vomit. They were referred to as pigs that go back to the mire. They were referred to as blots and blemishes feasting among you in their deceptions, reveling in their deceptions. But now as he comes out of that dark chapter, which was necessary in order to give the church 
an awareness of these individuals, the tone warms up again because he's writing to Christ's beloved, the loved ones of Christ, those whom Christ loves, the disciples whom Jesus loves, even as John, the writer of the gospel. And he says something about his letters here. Notice the next sentence in verse one. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Some translations might say, I'm stirring you up to wholesome thinking. So here he is revealing his intention and his purpose in writing this letter. It's to stir up the mind. That's one of the greatest needs in the Christian life is to have the mind stirred up again. Because we hear and then we forget. We heed and then we fail to remember. And so one of the reasons we continue to come back to God's word as to bread and as to water, the reason we keep coming back is because we need to have our minds renewed. We need to have our minds stirred up by new truths. No, he says by way of reminder, things that we've already heard, things that have already burned in our hearts, things that have already shaped our worldviews. Things that have already rocked our world, we need to be reminded of these things because we are a forgetful people. Within, we have the remnants of indwelling sin, wanting us to forget everything we've heard from God. Sin wants to reign in our mortal bodies, as Paul says. We have the world seeking to distract us from the things of God. And we have, as Ephesians chapter 6 talks about, principalities and powers at war, waging war against our souls, led by the devil, firing fiery darts into our minds, which is why we need the helmet of salvation to guard our thinking and to guard our minds. Why? Because within us, everything wants to forget the things of God. Without us, it's all intended to have us forget the things of God. And so why do we come back every Sunday? Why do we read the word throughout the week and throughout our day because Peter understands here and we understand because of the Spirit's wisdom given to us, we need to have our minds stirred up again. They settle. You know, when you think of something, you know, stirring up a glass of whatever, you can see over time that whatever it is, these, these, these ingredients settle at the bottom and you, you stir it up and that's what happens with our minds. Until you and I are glorified with Christ, We need to be stirred up. We need to be shaken up. That's why we need biblical preaching every week because we need God's word to stir us up. Now, stir us up to what, you might ask? Well, he uses this phrase here, to a sincere mind, a pure mind. The idea that Peter's conveying here is wholesome thinking, right thinking. Now, he has just spent a chapter describing depraved thinking, thinking that is likened to the thinking of irrational animals. The false teachers are unreasoning animals. As we find there in chapter two, he says, that's not what you're called to. You're called to wholesome thinking, hearty thinking, biblical thinking, thinking about God the way you ought to think about God as much as your body and mind now can retain the things of God. That's what I'm stirring you up to. You see, Peter understands that what, Peter understands the importance of wholesome thinking. Peter understands the importance of your mind being the control center for your Christian life. Your mind is so important. What you fill your mind with, what you feed your mind will always have an impact on your behavior, on your attitude, on your life. It all happens in the mind. That's why Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above. Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12, the importance of being transformed by the renewal of the mind. Your battles as a Christian are always going to begin in the mind. They're always going to conclude in the mind. And so I ask you, where are you in terms of your mind today? Where are you in terms of how you are feeding and what you're feeding your mind? 
The same way that we need, as we see Psalm 119, we need to guard our eyes, we also need to guard our minds. The things that we listen to, the things that we watch, inevitably enter into our minds and they have an impact on us. The same is true with God's word. The more the mind is filled with God's word, the more our minds are thinking about God's will, God, what pleases God, what he delights in, what is good in his eyes. Which is why, as Psalm 119 talks about, the psalmist there is storing up the word of God in his mind and in his heart so that he might not sin against God. He understands that the more of the Bible that is saturating the mind and filling the mind, the less likely there is to be sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful actions. He says, I am stirring up your minds to wholesome thinking, to sincerity, to being a true believer, practicing what you preach, in other words. You remember, this is something he said earlier in chapter 1. Look with me at verse 12 in chapter 1. Therefore, he says, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He says, you know these things. You're established in the truth, but I still see the need, he says, to remind you. Verse 13, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Recall them where? Recall them in the mind. So that's why we need to be reminded. Well, notice now what we need to be reminded of, verse 2. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, this again ties back to chapter 2. You remember in chapter 2, verse 21, when he was talking about the false teachers and those who follow them, when he said, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. He says, not so with you. I want you to remember the holy commandment. Now, what is this? We talked about it a little bit last week. It's really the, the summary of all of Christian teaching. The commandment to ultimately look to the Lord Jesus Christ in his first coming, in his accomplishments, in his second coming, looking at Christ in all of his glory for all of life. He says, this is what you're to remember. Number one, the predictions of the holy prophets. Now, again, you see the parallel with chapter one, right? You have the prophetic writings. You have the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He, he comes back to that thought and says, hey, I want you to remember what the prophets predicted. Now, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the day of the Lord. The coming of the day of God. Jason DeRucci summarizes the day of the Lord like this. He says, the Old Testament portrays the day of the Lord as punishment through overlapping images of cataclysm, war, and sacrifice. It highlights the day as renewal by emphasizing how God's presence will rest on his people in the midst of a messianic Davidic reign. The New Testament then identifies Christ Jesus as the one who fulfills the ultimate day of the Lord, inaugurating it in his death and resurrection and consummating it at his second coming. For the elect, Jesus' death signals the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin, and his resurrection marks the start of the new creation. For non-believers, however, the day of the Lord's wrath is still future, and it will come with cataclysm, war, and sacrifice as the warrior God will enter into space and time to punish his enemy and to reconstitute right order wherein he is exalted over all. That's the biblical teaching of the day of the Lord. And Peter is saying here, you know very well, church, that the prophets predicted this coming day. And we have to ask, where, where did they predict this? Well, if we read our Bibles and study the Old Testament, we read that all the way from Isaiah to Malachi, the day of the Lord is coming. And not just the day of the Lord specifically, but notice what Peter's going to go on to talk about in this chapter. 
Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. So you have this theme of fire concluding all of history. Look up at verse seven. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter is essentially saying here, you recall how the Old Testament prophets predicted how the world would end with God's fiery, flaming judgment. For example, listen to Isaiah 30 and verse 30. For those of you who are taking notes or mental notes or handwritten notes. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and a storm and hailstones. Isaiah 66 verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger in fury and to rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. So the prophets predicted this coming fiery day of the Lord. Nahum chapter one, verse six, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Peter is saying, remember the predictions of the holy prophets. It's going to happen. Zephaniah chapter one, verse 18, neither silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. We're talking about this holy God who is jealous for his glory, jealous for his people, coming to consume all the earth. He says, for a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Going a little bit further in Zephaniah 3.8, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And finally, the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter four, verses one to three. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Total consumption. For you who fear my name, however... The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Very similar to what Peter's talking about. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts. So from the beginning of the prophets to the end of the prophets in the Old Testament, they all talked about this fiery, burning, like an oven day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night to catch his enemies off guard and to bring everlasting rest and relief to his people. That's not all we're to remember, though. He says also the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, which, again, I'm arguing that this is the whole body of Christian teaching as come through the Lord Jesus Christ and his earthly ministry to remember his word. Now we're going to see here as the, the text plays out how the word of God is central to all of Peter's thinking here. So the day of the Lord, the word says it. The word says it. Verses one through two. Now verses three and four, the enemies of God scoff at it. The enemies of God scoff at it. Look at verses three and four. Verse three, Peter hits on their agenda. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful 
desires. So more than likely, he's referring back to these false teachers that have already infiltrated the church in his day and have infiltrated the church in our day and have been with us ever since. These first, you know, the first arrival all throughout the history of the church for 2,000 years up until now and all the way up until the end when Christ returns, there will be teachers, scoffers, mocking the day of the Lord mocking the day of judgment, mocking any kind of consummation or ending to this current world order. He says, knowing this, first of all, this is primary. This is foundational. This needs to be established. Number one, scoffers will come in the last days. Many people hear the phrase last days and think that Peter had no, nothing to say to his original audience here that they could just pass this off and say, well, this is just for another time. This is for the last days, like way hundreds of years in the future. But you remember the same Peter who preached, stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost when he quoted Joel chapter two. He quoted that this is this last days. These are the last days. In the last days, your, your, your young men shall see visions and prophesy and dream dreams. He, he says that the, this is that. These, what, what you're seeing here at Pentecost, Peter is saying, is everything Joel talked about. And Joel talked about the latter days, the last days. What is he saying to us? That the last days, from a biblical perspective, began with the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit there in Acts. From that point all the way to the end is constituted the last days, the period of the last days. We are living in the last days. Peter was living in the last days. We're talking about the latter times. This is an Old Testament theme that goes all the way back to Genesis. When when predictions were given regarding the latter times, the latter days, days to come, all those phrases refer to the latter days, this period of history where God is doing his work, where he is putting an end to, to, to sin through the work of Christ, where he raises Christ from the dead for our justification where Christ is building his church. This is all happening in the latter days where he will ultimately one day come with the armies of heaven to consummate and to finish everything he began. This is all the last days. Now, you know, we can see and sense, you know, people sense the signs and seasons of what's happening in the world today. And they'll say, well, we're living in the last days and maybe the proper verbiage is where maybe we're wrapping up the last days, because we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Scoffers will come in the last days. What's a scoffer? A scoffer is someone who mocks, someone who seeks to bring dishonor to that which is truly honorable. Criminals scoff at police and judges and justice. They scoff because there's as we saw in chapter 2, there's an animosity towards authority. And that's these false teachers. They will come with scoffing, mocking. Reminds us of Noah building that ark there in Genesis. And you can imagine the mockers in his day. What's this old fool doing? He's lost his mind. Never even seen any kind of rain here. What, what, what's he doing? What is he talking about? A flood? They're scoffing. All, whenever judge, the theme of judgment enters into the hearts and minds of fallen men and fallen women, the immediate response, if it's not fear and repentance, it's always scoffing and mocking. You remember Lot's, uh, the, son, the son, sons-in-law, Right? When he said, hey, let's go, we got to get out. He appeared to them to be jesting or joking. Anytime judgment is mentioned, there's scoffing, there's mocking. Now notice why they scoff there at the end of verse three. It has nothing to do with intellectual arguments. It has nothing to do with sound reasoning. It has everything to do with sinful desires. That's why they scoff. Notice, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That's why people scoff. That's why people take issue with Christianity. 
Because they want to keep living for their lusts. They want to keep living for themselves. They want to keep satisfying the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh, the desires of the fallen hearts of men and women. They want to keep pursuing sin. And so the only way to do that with confidence and boldness is to do it while you're following your sinful desires. Peter's already shown, as he's going to show, he's going to bring forth three arguments regarding God's coming judgment. This is why people scoff their own sinful desires. That's their agenda, is to make a mockery of this whole thing. But notice their argument now in verse 4. They will say, now this is in a scoffing type of wording. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is their scoffing. This is the nature of what they're they're arguing. Where is the promise of his coming? You have to imagine the early church, they expected an imminent return of the Lord. And so with every year that went by, Every year that they reminded people that Christ said he would return again and that he did not turn again, he did not come again, the intensity and the mocking and the scoffers only grew stronger and louder. Where is the promise of his coming? And then they point to history. This is their argument, history. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, and by the way, most of the time this word fathers is used in the New Testament, it's referring to the patriarchs. The patriarchs, those who believe that Second Peter was written in the first or the second or third century, they'll point back and say, "Well, he's referring to the Christian fathers here." No, this is this is used elsewhere to talk about the patriarchs, those who have gone before, way before. And what also could be the case here is, is Peter could be quoting just a, a, a common saying of the day. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, perhaps it was a common phrase of the day. All things are continuing, notice, as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, what they were denying, and this is, this is probably owing to Epicurean thought of the day, that, 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 that they rejected any kind of divine intervention. They, they rejected any kind of divine interruption, anything from the outside world coming to interrupt this world. They were very much like many people in our day where they believe that God created the world and then kind of just walked away from it. No miracles, there's no, there, there's, no, there's no God coming into the world that he made to do things, to say things, to perform miracles, to bring anything to judgment. No, they, they, they believe that God just created and he kind of just walked away, right? He wound up the clock and then he's just letting it go, letting natural processes happen, sun, moon, rain, thunder, but there's no intervention. That's, that's really what... They were influenced by, more than likely, Epicurus. But isn't it amazing how many people think like this today? Everything continues. Can you imagine, though, that day when, I hope it's in our day, for the sake of those who do not know Christ, it grieves me to think. But the way the Bible ends with John saying, come, Lord Jesus, come, Can you imagine this ultimate interruption that interrupts everything when every eye sees the glory of this coming king, when every ear is pierced, maybe to the point of death, you know, going deaf, this trumpet sounding from heaven. When the angels like, Matthew 13 talks about are gathering all of God's enemies and bringing them to judgment, dragging them away, whether they were in the grocery store or at the, at the park. Imagine this day that will be like un, unlike any day we've ever seen. But the argument is that, no, everything's going to continue as it, as it has been. No, it's not. There's going to be a massive interruption by God's justice and God's Messiah coming into this world and bringing history to its appointed God-ordained end. Christ will return. The word says it. Scoffers scoff at it. 
As we come to verses 5 through 10, the nature of God supports it. And now notice as we come to 5 through 10 here, Peter's going to mention four attributes of God that really support this final day at the end of history. Consider, first of all, first, verses 5 through 7, consider his sovereignty. His sovereignty, verses 5 through 7. Notice how Peter counters their argument. He counters their scoffing. He counters their, their mockery. He says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact. That's an interesting phrase, by the way. It signifies willful ignorance. Willingly putting your head in the sand so that you're not thinking about what you ought to be thinking about. This is deliberate forgetfulness. This is not, oh, I was really trying to understand the ways of God and it just escaped my notice. No, Peter talks about a deliberate ignorance. They deliberately, why do they do it? Again, the end of verse three, their own sinful desires. Why do people, why are people willfully ignorant? Because they want to continue on in their sin. That's the biblical answer. They deliberately overlook this fact. I love that. This fact, not opinion, not thought. They overlook this fact. Namely, that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He says they deliberately overlook creation. He, he words it a little bit weird, I'll admit, and commentators kind of go crazy about this. The earth was formed out of water and through water, more than likely referring to that time in Genesis when God had separated the waters and the land emerged. That's, that's probably what he's referring to. Divided the waters. They overlook it. And how did it all come to pass? By the word of God. That's the first example of God's word. Active in creation. They, do, they overlook the word of God that brought everything into existence. They overlook this fact that God said, let there be, and there was. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? God said. What's that key phrase in Genesis 1? And he said, and he said, let there be, and it was. Let there be, and it was. This is omnipotence at work here. This is a, I mean, we couldn't even dream of doing anything like this, and yet his power is such that he speaks and it comes to pass, as Psalm 33 says. He speaks and everything holds fast. Everything comes to be. They overlook this fact. Creation by the word of God. That's example number one Peter gives. Notice example number two in verse six. Not only creation, but the flood. And that by means of these, by means of what? Again, the Greek is kind of tricky here. It's by which? More than likely referring to the word of God and the waters he created. The word of God brought about the flood. Notice. And, and that by means of these, the, word that then, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. I mentioned earlier how the word of God is central to all of this passage. Why? Because it's the word of God that created everything. And it's also the word of God. It was at his word that the flood came. It was at his word, at his command, his righteous command, that the fountains of the deep burst forth that the rain clouds emerged and the windows of heaven opened and flooded the world. It was at his word. That's, that's, we get that by this little phrase, by means of these, water and his word, the world that then existed was deluged, overwhelmed, conquered, flooded with water and perished by God's word. That's example number two. So they, they overlook creation by the word and they overlooked the flood that came at his command and peter points us down verse 7 to the future 
but by the same word, what a phrase, by the same command of God, this same voice that commanded creation, the same voice that commanded this global universal judgment there in Genesis at the flood, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. For fire. You remember God in Genesis chapter 8 put his bow in the cloud signifying that the world would never be destroyed by water again, that he would not make an end of all flesh by means of a flood again. And so God, as it were, he, as a warrior who came down in that flood, he hangs up his war bow in that cloud and promises that from that time forth, he would preserve the world until the very end. The, the, the covenant with Noah is basically a covenant of preservation. That God promises that from this time forth, there will be a theater in which God will perform all his redeeming acts of grace. There will be a world functioning with sun and moon and seasons and winter and fall and, and, and summer and all these things, right? There will be seed time and harvest. In other words, God is promising there at the end of the flood that he's going to keep creation going until all of his saving, redeeming work is done. In other words, there, between the accomplishments of Christ at the cross and the consummation of his work at his second coming, the world will not be destroyed by man. It can't. It can't be. It can't be destroyed by asteroids and meteorites and all this. You know, it can't happen until God's work is done. He promised that everything would, cre- would continue until his work is done. Why? Because his word is reserving this whole thing for fire in the end. People say, well, this is maybe a, a reference to the, the nuclear bombs that are they're in the world today and that one day they're just going to all go forth. Friends, the only problem with that is that I believe it will be very clear who's bringing the fire. It will not be man, you know, losing control of his nuclear arsenal. It will be Yahweh unleashing his flames, his fury on his enemies. And it will be very clear that this was not just a mistake within you know, the government, this will be Yahweh coming to take vengeance on his enemies. They're being kept. They're being guarded until the day of judgment. Notice the end of verse 7. Until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We have this contrast. The world was destroyed first by water. It will be destroyed the next time and the final time with fire. But in each account, notice, it's the word of God, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God created all things. The word and command of God brought the global flood and the word of God will be that word that brings about the world being consumed with fire on the last day. It's being kept until the day of judgment you know, as you read the Bible, really the grand theme of the Bible, I mean, we, I, I, I really have to hand it to scholars. They're always trying to find the, the grand theme. What really glues the Bible together? You know, is, is it the, the theme of covenant? Is it the theme of the kingdom of God? Is it the theme of, um, you know, salvation by judgment? You know, Jim Hamilton's book. I, I, I hand it to these brothers who are always trying to find this thread throughout the Bible. And, you know, one brother that I really appreciate, Greg Beale, argues that the grand theme that holds the Bible together is eschatology, that from the beginning of creation, everything has been moving towards its final end. Everything has been moving, rolling down the hill of history to God's appointed end, the day of judgment and the day of destruction. Notice, of the ungodly. Again, We have to ask the question. I have to ask the question. Where do you stand in terms of your relationship with the living God today? Are you considered part of the godly, the godly man, the godly woman? Or are you in this category of the ungodly? Now, don't be deceived. This has nothing to do with your profession, what you call yourself. It has everything to do with what you are 
internally before God. As Proverbs says, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Who you are inwardly is who you really are before God. You can put on a face and a mask here on Sunday mornings and pretend to be something that you're not, but when you go home, when you're alone, when no one else is around, that's who you are. And you're there, you are either godly or you are not. And the day of judgment is coming with destruction for the ungodly. Now, this is not annihilation. This is not annihilation. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 45, talk about eternal punishment, eternal torment. This is not just annihilation. That would be nice, as they would say, right? Be nice just to be destroyed, to cease to exist. No, friends, men and women are immortal. They, they, they will never die. Their souls will never die. And so long as they continue to hate God, there will be nothing but wrath for them. So long as they continue to refuse to delight in the goodness of God, the only other alternative is the absence of God's goodness in wrath and hell. But in each account, it's God's word that upholds it all. That's because as Hebrews 1.3 says, Christ upholds all things by his powerful word. It was Christ who brought, God created all things through him and for him. It was God who said, enough is enough. My spirit shall not always strive with man there in Genesis. And he brings the flood at his command. And on the very last day will be his word, not our word, not the, wor- not the words of our governments. It will be his word that unleashes his final fury upon the unrepentant and the ungodly. It's his word, his word, his word. Now, that's the first attribute he calls our attention to, his sovereignty. Now, in verse 8, I want you to consider his eternality or his timelessness. His timelessness. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact. <laughs> so he's contrasting, right? They are deliberately overlooking this fact, but you do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. What is he seeking to comfort them in? Well, what are the scoffers saying? What are the scoffers trying to chip away at in the lives in the lives of the Christian church? He's not coming. It's another year has gone by. Another month has gone by. Where's the promise of his coming? He says, Don't overlook this one fact, beloved. God doesn't operate on our timetable. One day is as a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is as one day. And he's quoting from Psalm 90, where Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. And ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. It doesn't operate the way we do. So really, Christ has only been gone a few days. It hasn't been very long. Consider his patience, verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is interesting here. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. The Lord is not slacking in any way. He hasn't forgotten. This is what happens. I'm reminded, by the way, of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. I'll just read it for you. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. 
You see, these scoffers were saying God is slow to fulfill his promise. Where's the promise of his coming? Peter says, don't overlook this one fact. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. And because of that, sinners take advantage of that. As the passage in Ecclesiastes 8 is telling us, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, or to use the Justin translation, because lightning doesn't immediately come upon people who sin against God, it says here, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, they are presuming upon God's goodness and grace. Well, you know, God hasn't, he hasn't struck me down. He hasn't brought me to my death. Let me continue to sin. Let me, conce- let, me, let me see what I can get away with. And they go further and further and further. And that's exactly what the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise. A thousand years are as a day, and a day as a thousand years. It's only been a few days. He will fulfill his promise. Now notice the promise here. Because we tend to think of promises as merely blessings. But this is a promise of judgment from a God who never lies. You see, salvation is promised to believers, but fierce wrath is promised by the same God to those who refuse to give up their ways and to turn to his son. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Here's that attribute of patience. He is patient toward you. Thank God for his patience. Thank God that the the living God who rules over heaven and earth is not this trigger-happy God. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He waits. And he waits. He waits. It reminds me of one of the Hebrew words for patience and long-suffering. And it talks about him being slow to anger. It describes a long nose. In other words, you know, when wrath was described in the Old Testament, it, 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 was, it, it depicted a, a flaring bull just raging, you know, angry. But God's nose, so to speak, is long. It takes a long time for him to flare up like a bull. Now, these are all word pictures given to us to describe a God who obviously has no nose and has no parts like, like us. But he's patient He's patient. He was patient with all his people throughout the Old Testament. Patient with Paul. How many years was Paul persecuting the church? How many years was Paul dragging Christians off to be tried? How many years did Peter put his foot in his mouth? How long has God been been patient with you? Before you were saved. After you've been saved. He's been patient. He's patient. Now notice the context. Is patient toward you. Or some of your translations might say, patient toward us. That's important to note the context here. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient in order for repentance to take place. Now, there's a lot of people who use this verse to teach things that, and I, and I believe that they mean well. I don't believe there's any ill intent on the parts of these believers who are teaching that God truly is trying to save everyone in the world, that he's truly seeking to try to bring in as many people as he can before the end. And so they, they, they paint this picture, whether in, I know it's not intentionally, but it's indirectly. They paint this picture of this God who is just frantically, you know, wringing his hands and he's trying, he, he wants to bring people to repentance and he's wishing to bring everyone, but, but he just, he has to wait on their free will and he, he has to get their permission. Friends, notice the context. Is patient toward you or us? Who is he talking about? Wider context? The beloved the church, the elect. He's not afraid to use that word. He used it early on in his first letter. Look at the very first chapter, verse one. 
those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is patient towards his chosen ones, patient towards his elect, patient towards his people, not wishing that any of them, not wishing that any of them to perish, but that all should reach repentance. So many people take this verse out of context and say, look, it says he's not willing that any should perish. Well, the context is talking about his people. Any, he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. I do want to show you something because Ezekiel touches on this. Look at verse 21 with me. Ezekiel 18, verse 21. The Lord speaking through the prophet here says, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done. He shall live. What righteousness? Well, his turning away from his sin is repentance. Verse 23, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? He goes on and says, why, O Israel, will you die? Look at verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. You see, Peter's teaching primarily that God is patient towards his people, towards his elect. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And by the way, he's the one who grants them repentance. As 2 Timothy 2 talks about, verse 25, God is the one who grants his people repentance. But that doesn't mean that the Lord takes pleasure, derives pleasure when the wicked die in their sins. It grieves him. He does not take pleasure. He does not take delight in his enemies being put to death. Again, we have strong language in the Bible to give us a full picture of God, right? He delights in his justice, but he does not delight in the death of the wicked. How do we put these truths together? I don't think we're supposed to. I think we're supposed to take it all as one self-glorious revelation of the living God and say, we know that he's patient towards this church and that everyone who has been chosen will be brought to repentance. We know that. That's a non-negotiable. We know that God will save his elect. We know that all that the Father has given to the Son will be raised up in glorification by the Son and he will lose none of his sheep. That's a non-negotiable. We know that. We also know that God, as he tells us here in Ezekiel, he takes no pleasure. As a good God, he takes no pleasure, no delight in the death of the wicked who die in their sins. Back to 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance, come to that place of turning to the Lord in repentance. Consider his patience. And next, consider his justice finally as we come to the conclusion in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The idea is unexpectedly, Jesus taught this in Matthew 24. It's going to happen unexpectedly. Paul reiterated this in his first letter to the Thessalonians. It's going to happen like a thief. At a very unsuspecting moment, the idea is, I mean, Jesus talked about it. If, if you knew what time the thief would break into your house, you'd be watching. You, you, you would know, but it's going to happen unexpectedly. The day of the Lord, the time of punishment for his enemies and relief for his saints will come like a thief when you least expect it. And notice what will happen. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's how this whole thing is going to end, friends. God in his grace has given us the map of how and when, not when, where this ends. Be careful there, right? We don't know the day or the hour. But the heavens will pass away with a roar. This is cosmic. This is universal. This is far-reaching. This is all of creation. This is all of this present order passing away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. You remember that in the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, there will be no need for the sun or the moon because the Lord God and the Lamb will be the light of the new creation. This whole world order as we see it today will be burned up, done away with, dissolved. I don't believe that the earth will be you know, explode and destroy. I think what we're talking about is a, a, a massive fiery renovation of the present order. The earth and the works that are done on it, notice, will be exposed. He uses a word here, exposed. It means literally to be found. It's translated everywhere else in the New Testament as, or many places. The majority of the way this is used in the New Testament is the word found, discovered, if you will. It's the word that Jesus uses in Matthew or Luke 15 when he talks about the lost sheep being found. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep. That's the same word that Peter uses here. He's found it. I have found my lost sheep. What a way to think of the end of the world. That the works that are done on it will finally be found. In other words, that people will be exposed, discovered in their true nature, their true colors. This is exactly what the writer in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is talking about as he concludes those depressing chapters, but also liberating chapters, right? He's saying in, in, in throughout this whole letter, this whole uh, piece of Ecclesiastes, right, that enjoy life. Enjoy the wife of your youth. Nothing's guaranteed. Destruction comes upon the godly and it also comes upon the ungodly. Calamity strikes good people. Calamity strikes bad people. And then at the end, he says, the end of the matter, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And now notice how he ends. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, the world and those, and all that's done on it will be found, exposed, discovered. Every evil deed, every secret thing, God will bring it to the light, whether good or evil. I want to point you back to something Habakkuk said in chapter two of his vision. You see, there's so many people today and in Peter's day that were mocking the day of the Lord. Where is the promise of his coming? Peter says, the Lord's not slow, as some count slowness, as some regard slowness. Many believe he's actually reaching back to Habakkuk's vision in chapter 2, where Habakkuk writes, And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now you remember the prophet was given the word from God that Babylon would come and destroy everything. He was not told when, He was not promised deliverance even. He knew that he was going to wait for this time to come. That's why, I mean, kind of off topic, but if you have the chance to read Habakkuk, it's a glorious, glorious three-chapter book. Imagine 
God telling you, I'm going to come and destroy everything you love and everything you know, and you're not going to be delivered. You're going to be taken off or killed as well. And what he's saying here is that it's going to happen. If it seems slow, if it seems far off, it'll come. It will not delay. Wait for it, he says. And so he goes on to this song of waiting for the Lord at the end of his vision. What a way, though, to think of the end, that the earth and the works that are performed on it will be exposed in judgment. God, the omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing God, who knows the hearts and minds of men and women, will expose them and will judge them with perfect justice in his perfect righteousness. No one will be able to hide. No one will escape. This reminds me of what Amos said in his letter in chapter 9, verse 2. Consider God bringing his people to judgment. He says, if they dig into Sheol from there, shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven from there, I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they will hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So God's justice is such that he will find out his enemies. No one will escape. On that last day, everything will be exposed. All the secrets will be uncovered. And perfect justice will issue forth from the perfect God who rules over heaven and earth on a perfect throne of righteousness and justice. His enemies will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur forever. And his people will be ushered into this everlasting Sabbath and this new creation where we will delight in the glories of our God and King forever and ever. Peter saying. The word of God says it. It's a non-negotiable. The enemies, yes, they scoff at it. The nature of God supports this day. He's going to go on in the next few verses we're going to see next week of how we're to live in light of this day, but we're to know right now that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Either his promises of judgment and wrath to his enemies as the God who never lies, or the promise to redeem his people and to bring them to glory to be glorified with his son, to be glorified with one another in the saints on that day. How are we living in light of this day, friends? Have we fallen into, maybe not outwardly, but inwardly scoffing at the reality of the coming of the day of the Lord, the coming of the day of God? Do we scoff in our minds like, that's eh, not going to happen anytime soon? Beware of that mentality. Beware of that mentality. This is the God who never lies. Let's stand.